Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Hello and welcome back to Oh God What Now, the feral cat of politics podcasts among the pigeons of traditional broadcasting. I'm Alex Andreu. On today's show, they think it's all over. It is now. Have the Tory culture wars been cancelled by a footballer or will they persist with this electoral strategy? Protests in Georgia have highlighted not only the gap between its people and its government, but a wider thirst for democracy along the transcontinental edge of Europe. Plus, let them fight. Rupert Murdoch and Donald Trump are falling out badly, and it's not just because of the Dominion voting machines. What is going on, and what does it mean for the Trump comeback? Let's meet the panel. Arthur Snell is the host of Doomsday Watch and the author of How Britain Broke the World. Hello, Arthur. Hi, Alex. Arthur, as a sort of mini-banking crisis seems to have, at least for now, been averted by action both in the US and the UK to prop up in different ways Silicon Valley Bank. Why did a bank most people had never heard of before cause such ripples? Well, the thing about Silicon Valley Bank, and I guess the clue's in the name, is that it, it is massively focused on the US tech sector. Um, and, of course, that is a systemically important sector, both for the US economy, but also aspirationally so, one might argue, for the UK economy. Uh, we, you know, we have these ambitions to become a tech leader globally. And uh, as lots of people will know, many tech businesses go for years without making a profit. So they rely very heavily on the ability to continue to get credit. And, and the ability to give credit is one of the features of how Silicon Valley continues to turn out great tech companies. So the possibility that all this would dry up with this particular bank getting into difficulties, mostly around uh, high interest rates and the kind of wobbles around some of these tech companies, this is why a, a relatively small and, and little known bank could have such a global impact. Mm. And the extraordinary thing about it is that it, it sort of it was a, a good boy, as it were. It did everything the regulator told it and still uh, uh, got in trouble. So maybe, is there, I mean, is there a hint that maybe the regulation wasn't tight enough? Well, one thing that we know is that Trump reversed some of the most onerous of those post-2008 regulations. And of course, at the time, people said, is, is this just Donald Trump helping out his mates in the finance industry? 
Uh, it may well have been. I think the other thing that's happened is that you've seen a huge amount of venture capital and private equity surging into the tech space because it's been hard to get returns in other parts of the economy. And of course, the wider global economy is facing all kinds of headwinds, high energy prices, high inflation, high interest rates, and so on. So I think it might be a bit of a perfect storm scenario. But uh, and with the huge caveat that I'm definitely not a finance expert, uh, I'd be reluctant to say that it's just one bank and everything will be sorted by the mm, end of the week. Mm. Yes, uh, an, an old Elizabeth Warren tweet that seemed very prophetic was doing the rounds where she was saying that Trump reversing a lot of this stuff was uh, a setup for trouble to come. Um, Yasmin Sarhan is a writer for Time magazine. My nomination for Person of the Year appears to have <laughs> been lost in the post. Um, hello, Yasmin. Hey, Alex. I'll definitely raise that. that that's an important it, It's embarrassing, isn't it, for you more for, more than for me. Um, <laughs> Yasmin, you reported from the Defend Israeli Democracy rally in Parliament Square over the, the weekend. Why does the current Israeli government seem to be turning the wider Jewish diaspora around the world against it? They seem pretty intent on turning everyone against it. I mean, you've got the majority of the Israeli population that's opposed to the proposed judicial overhaul um, that this extreme right government has put forward. Um, I believe actually even they saw half a million people turn out in protest over the weekend, which I think there were reports in Israeli media that that's the biggest um, protest that the country's seen in its history. Um, they've also seemed to have lost the support of parts of the Israeli military. You have Air Force reservists who are saying that they're not going to serve um, if these changes go ahead. And increasingly, as I saw this weekend, you're seeing members of, I think, Israel supporters internationally, but also, I think, members of the wider Jewish diaspora who are looking at what's going on in the country and thinking, mm, I'm not sure um, that this is something I want to back. Um, and, and the reason I think it's important is because, you know, the, the people who were gathered at Parliament Square on Sunday, I think there were about 500 or so. I'm very bad at eyeballing these things, but um, I, I saw some estimates that were a lot higher and I was like, there's definitely not that many people there. But I think what, what that was indicative of was the fact that, you know, speaking to these people, they were carrying Israeli flags, they had handwritten signs. These are people for whom attending what was effectively a protest against the Israeli government probably would have been anathema to them a few months ago. But yeah, I think it's it's super um, telling that that you're starting to see the wider Jewish diaspora turn against it, whether that is something that the Israeli government is going to listen to, whether they're concerned about wider international support, particularly from their allies, is something I'm really interested to see. Uh, but something I'm also interested to see is, you know, to what extent these conversations about Israel's democratic crisis extends to more longstanding issues like the occupation. In fact, you know, there were of all the signs I saw in Parliament Square, I want to say a good quarter to maybe half of them reference the occupation in some way. Um, and and I think people are people are starting to you know realize those who perhaps were silent on that issue that actually maybe these are more connected and that they need to start having these broader conversations. So um, yeah, definitely. I think, something that's interesting to watch. Yeah, it does sound interesting. Uh, completing the panel, Marie Leconte is a journalist and author of book-type things, the latest of which is Escape, How a Generation Shaped, Destroyed and Survived the Internet. Hello, Marie. Hello. Marie, everything, everywhere, all at once. 
triumphed at the Oscars this week. I loved the film and found myself surprised at how emotional I felt about it doing so well. Are you a fan? And is there a wider message in its wins? Oh, it's, I mean, it's genuinely really embarrassing because I actually, I I am a big uh, critic normally of sort of parasocial relationships and the fact that social media has really encouraged people to think that celebrities are their friends, uh, which I think is really bad and also psychologically concerning. That being said, I sincerely believe in my heart of hearts that everyone involved in everything, everyone all at once uh, is a close personal friend of mine. And whenever something <laughs> good happens to them is generally like, I, I have cried. So this morning, uh, this is also going to be such a millennial sentence. Um, so I woke up, I did my skincare routine. Then I watched all the acceptance <laughs> speeches from the everything, uh, everything, everyone all at once uh, cast. And then I had to put SPF on again because I cried so hard. I Me wiped too. off the SPF on my face. <laughs> I wiped my other half came in the room and said do not watch the acceptance speeches unless you're ready for a 20 minute weepathon it was yeah what a, I mean in a weird way quite a cleansing way to start the day actually to just have a really good cathartic cry but no so I feel like I, I absolutely loved it I think on a, on a slightly corny point as well uh, it is I believe neurodiversity awareness week and one of my favorite things about the movie is that they wanted to make uh, see one of the main characters uh, someone with ADHD and then so one of the Daniels was like, well, you know, we did feel that the first step to that would be to do some research on ADHD to see what it's like. And in the process of doing that, one of the Daniels was like, oh, oh, I think I may have ADHD and then got diagnosed. And it's like watching the movie. It's like, yeah, as someone who also has ADHD, I can entirely believe that was made with someone who is very uh, neurospicy, as I like to call it. Um, but yes, no, just an, an absolute delight. Everything about it makes me really happy. We interviewed the Daniels for the Culture Bunker and I can confirm that they are genuinely just lovely. Lovely people. Again, I probably would have cried. And I'm normally like, I pride myself on being really good at talking to people I'm quite intimidated by or people who are quite famous. But I think I would have just been like, hello, I made you friendship bracelets because you're my best friends. On Friday, the BBC announced that Gary Lineker would be stepping back from presenting Match of the Day. Lineker's team let it be known that he had been taken off. At that point, government was briefing friendly press outlets that the whole affair was working out like a dream, that it was, I quote, Christmas come early. Then Ian Wright announced he wouldn't be appearing on Match of the Day, then Alan Shearer, then pretty much everyone. By Saturday evening, Match of the Day had been reduced to one of those Taiwanese new media animations clips 20 minutes with no theme tune no pundits and not even any commentary if you know what midfielder philip billing looks like you know if you don't you don't the tide had turned and the dream launch for suella braverman's despicable law had morphed into a nightmare i kept returning to the words of time sports writer martin samuel at the very start of the outcry on wednesday and i quote If your new immigration strategy is so artfully constructed it needs protecting from a tweet by the bloke who presents match of the day, might not be as clever as you think. Finally, on Monday, the BBC capitulated. The commentators had won. Mike Graham read Lineker's statement on air, crumpled it in disgust and threw it at the camera. A rueful Claire Fox nodded in sadness. That's the thing, Miss Mordant. Goal hangers often score. Marie, first they came for the footballers was a little unexpected, as Louise Raw tweeted. 
But was it? This government has had its butt kicked by football boots for a couple of years now, from school meals to taking the knee. Why do they keep going back for more? Oh, it's entirely insane. So I think the first slightly boring point is that it is a problem on other issues as well with the last few and the current Conservative governments is that they just are refusing to learn lessons from one another. So you'd think that having had four... Is it four? Hang on. How many prime ministers have we had since 2010? Cameron, May... Five. Or five? Uh, oh, my God, it's been five. Okay. So I think you'd think that actually... So I, I think we should keep this in because it makes the point... Five, neatly. five, yes. Yeah, yeah no, no, it took me a second. Um, Is that, you know, you should be able to get better with each iteration, right? You should be able to learn from your mistakes, but they just refuse to do that. No, but but also, so I, I, I don't know. I, yeah, I find it baffling. I think it is fundamentally you know, a healthy dose of classism, of, in some cases, racism as well, uh, looking at Marcus Rashford especially. So I think it's kind of just looking at people and thinking, oh, we can win a fight against those people. You know, they're just dum-dums to play with a bull when it's not actually someone like Marcus Rashford has had a kind of basically like a PR team and has been PR managed since he was about 12. So mm. he knows exactly how to do these things. And, you know, and Gary Lineker has been a prominent media personality as well for a very long time now. So yeah. he knows what he's doing. So these people are professionals. So I think that there's that weird image in corners of Westminster of thinking again, like, hey, hey they're just boys who kick the ball. We, we will win a fight. It's like they're professionals. And also they have teams behind them. This is, again, not a fight you want to pick. And yet they keep doing it. So BBC Director General Tim Davey released a statement bringing Lineker back, apologising to everyone for a difficult period. (laughs) Sources say he has also apologised to Lineker personally. He maintains that he did the right thing by suspending Lineker and also the right thing by unsuspending Lineker and apologising for suspending him. (laughs) Can both those things be true? Well, no, but also what else was he going to do? Like, he was not going to release a statement saying, well, I shat the bed um, and, you know, end of statement. Um, so, no, no, I, I, I think he did, uh, but, but which, again, in a way that I think was quite predictable, he just put himself into a corner and the only way to fight out of it was is to somehow apologise to everyone and also, again, pretend that every single stage he was like, yes, of course, that was the right thing. So, yeah, no, I, I, I busy don't even really know what to say because, yeah, he just fucked it. Um, and then that, that's kind of that, really. Uh, yeah, um, that'll and, do. It, yeah. And yeah, what, what do you say um, after having fucked it? So, well, I fixed it. It's like, cool. Good. Thank you. Yeah. Well done. Thanks. Um, also, I think there was potential for contagion that many people I don't think saw. But I, I kept thinking if they persist by this, all it takes is like one prominent person in entertainment. Wasn't Greg James actually? Yeah, I think well, there was a there rumor were he was noises, yeah. to hear, So yeah. if someone like you know who presents something live, I don't know who presents live things mm. nowadays. I don't know Graham Norton, Claudia Winkleman had gone. Do you know what? I'm also in solidarity with mm. Gary Lineker. The whole live output could have fallen apart. Um, Arthur. The out for BBC management has been to announce an external review of the rules for freelance presenters outside news and current affairs. But this is not some historical rule book being brought up to date. Tim Davey wrote those rules two years ago. The bit that talks about about other presenters with an additional responsibility to the BBC because of their profile is known internally, I'm told, as the Lineker Clause. So what might new rules look like? Well, I guess they've got two options. One is to make the rules much more restrictive so that there's nobody can say that there's any room for interpretation. 
But I don't think they, they'll be able to do that because the issue that was there right from the start was not that uh, the rules were necessarily unclear, but that everyone knew that Andrew Neil, just for example, gets to tweet right-wing stuff as often as he likes um, and, and nothing happens to him. So it, it seems to me that in a way... Uh, and of course, it's classic. It's very 2023 that you have an independent review because um, you know of failures of leadership. That feels so familiar. But the the review can probably come up with some useful guidelines, but it doesn't answer the question of what do you do when someone tweets in favour of government policy, but still in a in a sort of very passionate way. Yeah, this is not a particularly sport oriented podcast. But this does go much deeper, doesn't it? This is politics. It is a spectacular defeat for the right wing in the culture wars, isn't it? Well, I'd like to think it's a defeat even more so the concept of the culture war, because it it seems to me that at the heart of this was a conservative assumption that people who watch football are working class, fairly simple people who therefore support aggressive, you know, neo-fascist policies towards immigrants. And it's perfectly possible that um, people who watch football have a, a wide range of opinions or that they they appreciate Gary Lineker but don't agree with him on everything. And actually, they don't need to do everything in their life defined by this idea that you're either on one side or the other of some massive cultural divide. And I think the thing about a culture war is that it's something that the Tories are desperately trying to generate. But I think a lot of British people are really rather unwilling participants. Mm -hmm. Yasmin, um, I was struck by the the notion that this was bad because it was party political. Is anything party political the moment a political party chooses to make it? I mean, this is about established principles of international humanitarian law. And Lineker has campaigned in this area for years. What if the government decides to become a climate denier tomorrow, as some Tory groups push for? Would presenters like Sir Sir David Attenborough or Chris Packham be expected to just say nothing or agree with it? I feel like I would only accept David Attenborough. I feel like in that case, David Attenborough should be allowed to criticize the government, but only if he does it in the voice that he uses when he's describing like an animal. <laughs> <laughs> Tory government. I'm not even going to try to actually. Him, you know? <laughs> oh, I, I wish you would. I, I respect that you need when that. <laughs> um, but, but I think like, you know, obviously, yeah, based on the last few days, I think it's very clear that if, if any of them were to have express, like, expressed an opinion on government policy that happened to be in line with the area, their area of expertise or an issue that they've been campaigning with or an area that they're not <laughs> involved with, that that would have been an issue. Um, and, and something tells me, of course, that, you know, it's it's hard to trade in hypotheticals, but if Lineker had tweeted favorably of the policy, I would imagine we probably wouldn't have seen match of the day have the issues that it did. But but I think what's confounding to me and, and just this is purely also just based on this notion. I'm sure Marie probably has thoughts on this as well, but like, you know, the BBC's whole um, sort of fight over impartiality and what that means and what it means for, you know, it's, it's news presenters to, to have opinions, to express opinions. I get that separate. That's, that's one thing. And, and I think there is a, a vibrant debate to be had about whether journalists are allowed to have opinions. I mean, they obviously have opinions, whether they're allowed to share them is another thing. So, I mean, I think of course it's perhaps one thing if Laura Koonsberg decides to tweet in opposition to a government piece of legislation. She could ask critical questions and probably get the same, you know, sort of message across. But it's one thing if she does that. But like, 
you know, Lineker is employed for his knowledge of football. Attenborough is employed for his knowledge of climate. No one in their right mind sincerely believes that because they have opinions or because that they work for the BBC, that they must be devoid of all opinion. Or that he somehow reflects the BBC's sort of corporate position. Right, or that people look to him and be like, oh, oh my gosh, like he's, because he works for the BBC, he's not allowed to have thoughts. Like, I just think that's all a bit silly. And it, it's hard to think of, I, I was trying to think of sort of an American example of, I mean, there, there are examples, and, and, but I mean, it's, it, I don't, I can't imagine. We'll, the we'll talk about it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we'll talk about uh, America in a minute. Uh, let me tell, tell you all something that really tickled me on, on the world at one. Uh, program on Radio 3 this afternoon, uh, Lineker's most recent tweets uh, were referred to the editorial standards team and the editorial standards team replied, and I quote, expressing humanitarian sympathy for the plight of others does not breach the current guidelines, which is nice to know. <laughs> um, God. Yes, we... Moving on to something else that I don't think has been discussed fully, the row had died down by Thursday morning and up popped dozens of Tory MPs writing to the BBC demanding his scalp and several cabinet ministers attacking him very directly personally, including Penny Mordaunt, from the dispatch box. If it is imperative that the public broadcaster stays above the fray, do politicians not share that duty not to bait and draw such people further into petty arguments? To be honest, their their responses kind of reminded me of people who um, are like blue checks on Twitter who are just constantly responding to, to people who are trolling them. I mean, you're just, you're not, I mean, and, and this isn't a perfect parallel, but like, I, I just don't really see what they stand to gain by pitting themselves against a footballer. I mean, I think the the one thing that I think, um, and, and Marie kind of hit on this in terms of like kind of the lessons learned with government, but I think, you know, if you look at Rashford, if you look at Lineker, the, the, the one key difference that politicians, I think, need to realize is unlike professional athletes and other celebrities who are popular, they often are not. And I just really don't see what mm. they stand to gain by pitting themselves against these people. And so, I mean, I, and I, and I think, you know, Rishi Sunak then put out a statement saying that this is a matter for the BBC. It probably would have served the government a lot better to just have that position. From put the that out at the start. Yeah. Rather yeah, than yeah. send their ministers yeah. to start fighting. with. Like, especially these sorts of people. I mean, Lineker, Shearer, Ian Wright. I mean, these are people, the enduring images of which are literally draped in the England flag. Marie, those briefing newspapers on Friday with delight at how, how well this had gone cited uniform support from right-wing papers for their policy as the source. Um, but two polls over the weekend actually showed majority support for Lineker by quite a, by quite a bit. Were the Tories undone by the Westminster bubble they keep warning everyone else about? Oh, absolutely. And I'm actually so quite annoyed about this because I that, that was a feature I really wanted to write at some point, like in a head on the back burner. And then John Ellidge went and only went and wrote it, which I, I can't believe he did that, even though uh. I had the idea and I'd not told anyone that I had the idea. <laughs> um, but, but anyway, so that more, more seriously, I, I, I do think that there is, yeah, that there's such a thing as, you know, killing someone with kindness. And I think uh, the fact that the papers keep going, hey, guys, just keep doing everything you're doing. It's great, uh, is not the best thing. But that being said, I do think it's 
kind of on the government as well, because ultimately what the Mail and the Telegraph, for example, in the Express, let's say, uh, do, and even the Sun, is try to pander to their readers. Mm. You know, like they, they want to write stuff that will make their readers and their readership sort of like keep going. Um, their readership is very small. Like we no longer live in the era of kind of mass market newspapers. Um, even, you know, I think even 10, 15 years ago, it was an entirely different uh, landscape. So, so yes, yeah, so I, I, I wonder, and which is quite interesting, because again, I think a lot of the people in government now and the special advisors are not that old, but they've not quite adapted yet, I think, to this uh, away from the mindset of, well, if we've got the papers on our side, then we're done. It's like, not anymore, like, mm. A, not anymore, and B, again, the papers can call it wrong, and you need to be aware of that. So no, it, it is a really weird relationship that I think is ultimately becoming in incredibly harmful to the Conservative Party, but no one seems to be willing to do anything about that. Mm. Yes, I mean, the other aspect of it is that it has brought into sharper focus the BBC's impartiality on other fronts. Labour are now pushing harder for Richard Sharp to step down. How, How damaged has the BBC been by the last 10 days, like institutionally. Yeah, it does feel like the BBC has probably come away the worst from all of this, in large part, I think, because as as you just pointed out, its obsession with ensuring that its own presenters in pure and partial has invited critics to point out all the ways in which the organization's senior leadership um, could, could be questioned over their own impartiality. I mean, let us not forget that the BBC's director general, Tim Davey, once stood as a local candidate for the Conservatives. Its chair, as you mentioned, Richard Sharp, is at the center of two investigations over his appointment after it emerged that he had first donated £400,000 to the Conservatives and then helped facilitate a further £800,000 loan to Boris Johnson just weeks after he recommended him for the job. And then, of course, you have you know people like Robbie Gibb, who was appointed to the, to the BBC's board despite having previously served um, in Ther- as Theresa May's advisor. I mean, and then, you know, you, you kind of look at, I mean, and those are, of course, individuals who may have their own opinions, which, as I said before, I mean, that's not an unrealistic thing to expect. But you have the BBC, for example, recently apologizing over its failure to properly scrutinize claims made by um, Nadine Dorries. Arthur, the, the Tories seem to me to be desperately casting around for a sort of new Brexit um, which is something Marie hinted at, a, a sort of issue that transcends traditional party divides and can reunite their, their disparate 2019 coalition. Is there a more profound danger here for Sunak's electoral policy? Can, can culture war issues be pushed too far and end up backfiring? Is that the lesson, actually? I think it really is, and, and I, I hope it is, because ultimately... Culture wars are so destructive and it's so depressing to see the Tories um, drift into that, you know, instead of actually having policies that we could debate and and discuss. You know, as I mentioned earlier, the culture war slightly assumes a a very patronising and and basically disrespectful attitude towards your own voters, that they're motivated by simplistic urges, uh, that, that they don't really care about facts that they have, they adhere to a uniform and predictable set of views on almost any subject, which you know conforms to some weird uh, sort of cultural uh, divide. And and rather as as um, Marie was saying earlier, you know, not that many people read these newspapers anymore. That the organs of the culture war don't really function very well. And and I guess this this incident has shown that. You know, here's a guy who, on one level, may be the most influential voice in what we could call woke britain on on another level he is he represents uh the authentic 
the most authentic expression of British culture in the form of football, and and both in his you know work as a footballer, but as a presenter for nearly a quarter of a century, um, somebody who's just incredibly popular with every sort of person. So the idea that you could then have a culture war against his person, I mean, it's moronic, but I suppose <laughs> that's that's what we're dealing with. Marie, do you think that there's something to that, actually? Do you think it just rubs the Tories their own way around? This most patriotic sport, sort of par excellence, mm. is populated by lefty liberals, it seems like. But it, but it's also, isn't it, because it feels like a shift that's happened quite recently as well. And obviously, I'm, I'm no expert in, you know, British football, like English football pre sort of, you know, 2015. That's but, soccer, you know, Yasmin. <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, but kind of looking at you know, the, the lovely boys uh, who I have come to adore, now, you know, Gareth Southgate's lovely boys. Like, it is true, you know, and, uh, everyone I know who's always loved football is like, you know, that is incredibly different, you know, an incredibly different class of players and managers and stuff from the ones, you know, they grew up with in the 90s who were kind of just slightly, either slightly yobbish at worst or at best would obviously never dream of talking about politics because mm. they were just drinking and again being just slightly loutish. Um, so, so so I do think that, you know, it is a change that's happened relatively recently. And so I could see how if you're the Conservatives, you'd be like, oh, oh no, like these guys were not part of the equation <laughs> and now they're part of the equation and not on our side of the equation? <laughs> that doesn't feel great. That's a, so I, I, I can see how that's happened and I sort of understand if I were them, I'd be like, well, no. <laughs> <laughs> you don't do that. Um, and and that brings me full circle to what you were talking about, Yasmin, the, 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 the sort of Col- Colin Kaepernick um, paradigm from the U.S., it was a story that trans- transcended the sport, transcended the country. It sort of became a huge thing globally. A- and I think it's seen by many to have actually been part of what fired up the liberal base and propelled Biden to victory. So arguably, it was not all that successful of a- as a strategy for the conservatives, even in a country with politics as polarized as the states. Why try to import it? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good parallel. Um, and, you know, I, I think with Kaepernick, and, and as you say, that just set off a wave of um, of advocacy. I think with it, it really showed, I think, both in the U.S. and then around the world. I mean, um, the lovely boys, as Marie referred to, I mean, they take the knee um, in part because of what Kaepernick started. Um, you know, he really established that actually, you know, there is room on the pitch or the court or whatever sport you're talking about, um, for politics. Um, and in his case, of course, taking the knee in protest of racial inequality and police brutality in the United States. The lesson for, for all governments, Americans and otherwise, is is kind of back to that, that point I said before, which is to learn that I think athletes and sports heroes, unlike most politicians, are quite popular, but also, you know, are fully capable. And, and, and I think it is grown more acceptable for, for them to to take positions in this space and, and to use their their um, their platform to to advocate um, on on political issues, um, and so you know when you try to take them on, you probably best not miss. Right. Let's talk about some actual policies because things are actually going on. Arthur, firstly, on the deal be- between Britain and France, on the face of it, it seems warm words and an extension of what we have, notably. No returns agreement was discussed. France gets some money from us. We get mad at them for not stopping more migrant crossings. I mean, is this any different? I, I think that's about right. And and for what it's worth, uh, when I was talking about this 
last week, I, I did say that I thought it was very unlikely that we get a returns agreement. Uh, we, we haven't done enough with uh, our relationship with Europe to reach the stage where we're likely to be able to do that sort of thing. So it's, yes, it, it's, it's, an, it's an improvement that the quality of the relationship is much improved, but ultimately uh, it's not in the interests of the French government to take on board our problems uh, with regards to migration. And so, so that, that's, where, that's where we've reached a sort of limit. Marie, also Sunak and, and uh, Braverman's vile law had its second reading in Parliament on Monday. There are rumours of Tory backbenchers thinking it goes too far, some others thinking it does not go far enough, demanding a sort of express derogation from the European Convention on Human Rights. You recently did a bunker daily on, on Tory factions. Who holds the power here, do you think? Who who are the dangerous people for Sudan? It's not, so th- there's not quite, well, I suppose the common sense group is kind of quite traditionally the very gammony end of the parliamentary conservative party, but I'm not really sure like this is a faction issue, but in that slightly amorphous way where actually a lot of the people who probably really, really want that bill are part of the ERG because ERG equals hard Brexiteers equal really hate immigration. Mm. Um, but no, so, so I think more broadly it is just the kind of yeah slightly brexity well very brexity i guess like proper right wing of the conservative party that rishi uh is concerned about or should be concerned about if, if i were him um and with especially i think the uh, northern Ireland protocol he did manage you know i think a lot of them huffed and puffed uh before the details were published and are now have now gone quite quiet because they're mm-hmm. not actually fine. So, you know, but but they were clearly clearly spoiling for a fight over that. So that that is probably why he's going as far as he is right now, because he knows that again, there, there, there's a contingent there on his benches that does clearly, you know, A clearly does not like him and B clearly would like, I think, to pick a fight with him. Mm. So that that's probably the the part of the party he's trying to appease at the moment. Yeah. Um uh, Yasmine, the budget is coming um this week. Have we gleaned anything from sort of leaks and trails? Is is this a chance for another reset? From what I've gauged, just looking at the reporting um, that I've seen on the budget so far, it does sound like the government's pro- that this isn't going to be as splashy of a budget as the last time around. Um, I think that's part partly perhaps informed by the fact that the government will want to save a lot of those big ticket items for an election <laughs> where um, it's it's going to have a if the polls are in, in, in any indication a difficult time. But um, th- there are a few things I think we can expect. I think the, the first thing is potentially some good news on energy bills, support for which is expected to be maintained at current levels for three more months, um, meaning that typical households will continue to pay £2,500 uh, per year rather than it rising to £3,000. Um, we'll also probably see a few bill- billion pounds um, for public sector pay settlements um, to address the strike issue. We might also see some policies aimed at getting retired over 50s Britons back to work. So yeah, I mean, it's I, I don't expect it to be quite as exciting as, as the last one, but it sounds like they are trying to give some. When nothing could be as exciting as the one before, I think. Finally, Marie, polls opened on Monday for the SNP leadership election. Um, we will know who is the next leader within a couple of weeks. You did a superb interview on the bunker with Mary Black last week. How different are the possible uh, uh, SNP multiverses <laughs> depending on who is elected? Is there one with hot dog fingers? Oh, God, I sort of hope and hope not. Um, well, I think we can, you know, that there's no real point talking about what in Ash Regan, um, you know, 
administration would look like because she is not going to win because she is quite mad in a way that I'm finding very entertaining. She's kind of like the Marianne Williamson of the SNP contest. <laughs> no, well, I mean, Hamza Yusuf, if he wins, will be a thing. You know, clearly the continuity candidates and most established SNP figures have uh, backed him. Uh, he was obviously a senior minister under Sturgeon and, and is kind of pitching himself as that. And then, so I think... So he's Kate, the sort of continuity. He is, yeah. he is. I think Kate Forbes would be fascinating, like, you know, policy-wise, because obviously she is very socially conservative, but also I think economically more conservative than I think quite a lot of the SNP. Mm. But also because the party may split. And obviously, you know, as, as Mary Black told us in the bunker... Um, she would not get drawn into whether the SNP could split or not over a Kate Forbes premiership. So I think that would be one to watch. Um, and even you know, even if it doesn't split formally, where where does where, where would she take the party? I guess because she is again quite a strikingly different politician and has been. I think in in the debates as well in the hustings, um, attacking the Sturgeon government as much as yeah. you know. You know, as, as much as she could. So yes, yeah, so I think the the spiciest universe is definitely the Forbes one. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Now, last weekend, the Georgian government backed down from a proposed bill targeting foreign agents in the face of widespread unrest. The law would have punished NGOs or media organizations if they took 20% or more of their funding from outside the country, but was seen by many as a, an authoritarian measure designed to increase Russian influence in the region. The protests have drawn attention to the problems facing the country and raised the prospect of EU membership. As Ukraine has proved, membership of Western organizations has become a talismanic milestone towards the democracy for populations along that European Eastern Front, while not always being realistic. Do we get countries in trouble by teasing with no follow-through? Arthur, you've been to Georgia. What is it like as a place? Well, as a place to visit, I mean, it's amazing. It's it's physically stunning. It has extraordinary history. I mean, a history stretching back millennia. It has the best food of any country I've ever been to. And they also invented wine. So what's what's not to like? <laughs> OK, that's a, that's a claim. Um, the, the, the British public might not have heard much from them since the war between Russia and Georgia 15 years ago. How has the region changed since? Yeah, so the, the tragedy of Georgia is is the tragedy of Russian meddling, and of course, we 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 talk in the shadow of the Ukraine war, uh, but Georgia was arguably the first place to go through this experience. So they had their own color revolution ahead of the Ukrainians, a so called Rose Revolution, and that brought in a reformist sort of Western leaning government of Mika, Mikhail Saakashvili, um, and. Ever since that time, uh, Putin's Russia have sought to interfere in Georgia to try and control its politics and ultimately to destabilize the country. And they've done this largely through the personality of another uh, 
intensely important personality in Georgian politics. And this is uh, Ivan Ashvili, Bidzina Ivan Ashvili, who is a, a billionaire. He's, he's made all his money from Russia, but he's a Georgian citizen. And he at different times, he's been prime minister. He runs a political party that is pro-Russian. And he effectively is uh, the Kremlin's man in Georgia. Mm. And Sky's Dominic Waghorn reports that former Georgian president, Mikhail Saakashvili, who led the that 2003 Rose Revolution, claims he was poisoned in prison and is close to death. Is there a risk of further unrest if something happens to him? Yes, there is. Saakashvili is by no means perfect. He has his own history of alleged corruption, and uh, he behaved in quite an autocratic fashion when he was president. However, he he represents a completely different approach to government for Georgia, which is not being stuck in this sort of circle of Russian influence and kind of reliving the Soviet era. He, as, as you mentioned, he's been imprisoned and, and is in incredibly Ill, uh, Ill health. You you can see pictures of him online. I mean, looking like he's on his deathbed. If something were to happen to him, there would definitely be more unrest. Uh, Georgia's politics are fatally divided between these the the sort of pro Western and a pro Russian party. Uh, I'm inclined to think that the pro Russian party does not enjoy the popular support that it claims, but of course uh, it has access to huge resources and with. Um, Ukraine in, in the state that it's in, you can see why Putin would be desperate to cling on to his his sort of power base in Georgia. Mm. Yasmin, uh, you wrote last week about Freedom House's annual Freedom of the World report. Um, back in uh, 20, 2006, they declared we were in a global democratic recession. But this year, 34 countries reported improvements in their civil liberties. Is is democracy sort of back in fashion? <laughs> um, not quite, though things aren't looking as dire as they once did. Um, so according to Freedom House's latest report, the number of countries in decline, of which there are 35, continue to outpace those that are going in the other direction, the 34. So the good news is that the margin between countries improving and countries in decline has n- has never been narrower, um, at least since this democratic recession started. The reason that it's narrowed, though, is twofold. The first is that many of the factors that made, I think it was 2020, the worst year for democracy in recent history um, was the pandemic and the restrictions that came with it. And many of those have since been reversed. And I'm thinking particularly of kind of the very severe restrictions, the likes of which we saw in China with their zero COVID policy. So that's one reason that countries are improving. But the second, and I think perhaps more noteworthy reason that is something to celebrate is that autocracies are no longer seen as quite, um, I guess, infallible as they once were. I mean, throughout last year, authoritarian regimes, liberal leaders suffered a series of blows, whether it was Jair Bolsonaro failing to win re-election in Brazil, even after an attempted coup. Um, I mentioned China rolling back on its zero COVID policy, um, Vladimir Putin's failure to achieve um, instant victory in Ukraine. Of course, you have widespread protests in Iran. I mean, there are basically multiple examples um, that even in countries as unfree as as some of the ones I just mentioned, um, of course, I'm thinking of Iran and China, that you're seeing people, um, popular movements, step up and step up and fight back. And actually, we're seeing that these autocratic governments, despite the amount of control they have, actually can can be you know can be weak and can actually be forced to roll back. Marie, the EU's 
more aggressive enlargement policy appears to be on the back burner to me. I don't know if that's true or not. Do, do you think since Ukraine, they pay more attention to what's happening in their east? And, and how will this shake out, do you think, between Schultz and Macron, really, who are the major possible drivers for this? Will we see a renewed drive for enlargement or will we see a sort of consolidation and shrinking back? Um, well, I think it's it's worth looking at timelines in this context. And I'm about to be quite cynical, I think, um, because, you know, just because of the amount of time it takes for a country to actually join the EU to become a member of the EU, love, from the moment between signing the piece of paper that says, you know, hello, European Union, I would like to join. And the point when that country becomes a member, mm. you know, many, many years uh, usually kind of go by. So all, all the countries currently on the accession list, I think that, you know, Macron will no longer be the leader of a major European nation by the time any decision is taken on any of them. Scholz will probably be the same, you know, unless he pulls a Merkel yeah. um, and stays on for a very long time. So I think they can, they can sort of probably get away politically with actually, you know, saying, well, yes, obviously, you know, we, we have since the war, as you mentioned, you know, the you know, there's a new dimension to this really, a kind of new symbolic dimension. So, yes, of course, we want to advance democracy and et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, they will not have to deal with you the consequences. So I wonder if actually in terms of deeds, they will be going towards consolidation. But then in terms of words, still talk like they want to expand quite massively would be, again, my quite cynical view. Mm. But I may be wrong. No, I mean... Your cynical view has proven to be more right than wrong. Um, Arthur, there was an iconic image during the rounds of a woman facing down a police water cannon while waving defiantly the EU flag. Um, Georgia would be the only country uh, that, that's not an island that, that doesn't have a, a land border with a member state. Is the possible ousting of EU and NATO frenemy Erdogan in the upcoming Turkish election. A, a really vital moment, actually, for for the region. Well, I think that's true, and um, but I, I'm, I'd be quite cautious. I mean, I'm not suggesting that you're predicting that, that Erdogan is off, um, but he certainly, there's a lot of things he can do to to make it oh and he will and he will yeah <laughs> including you know arresting most of the oh, yeah. uh, candidates um which you know does 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 have a setback i mean i think slightly to pick up on what marie was saying that the the uh you can be an eu candidate country for a very long time before you join the eu and actually georgia it's it's worth going into the history of that a bit because georgia um, in the early days of Saakashvili, it was dangled that it would, could join NATO and the EU. And it was almost in response to that, that Russia invaded in 2008. And Russian forces are still occupying, you know, parts of Georgia in the so-called frozen conflicts, which are, which the Russians love. Um, and that's, so that's a classic case study of, um, Offering someone membership of a thing without giving it to them is the worst possible outcome because, of course, what that does is it gives Russia, um, I'm not going to say a reason, but certainly an excuse to to strike out. But at the end of the day, Georgia wasn't in NATO. It didn't have the EU behind it. Which is why I asked that question at the top. Do you, I mean, do you think we we are the West, when I say we, are a little bit guilty of showing a bit too much ankle to, to countries which are not an instant realistic prospect for joining, actually. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I think particularly for Georgia, because, as you said, I mean, the geography of Georgia, it is, it is due south of Iran. It is geographically 
in another part of the world. Now, that doesn't mean it can't be in the EU, but it's there's quite a lot of complexity there. But what's interesting, having visited it, what you do see is a is a profoundly uh, sort of European cultural sensibility. Now, part of this is in the history. It, it's it's um, it argues over Armenia, which country has the oldest church, but it's basically been a Christian country for about as long as there have been Christians. Now, you know, that that touches on quite awkward discussions about what, what is the cultural identity of Europe, but it is very, very clearly in its own mind a European country, even if it is geographically, arguably, you know, almost in Asia. Um, so I, I think you've got you, you've got these issues there. And one of the things that you see, yes, is, is the European flag flown all over Georgia, but of course it is also the flag of the European Council, or sorry, the Council of Europe, of which is it a member. So, I mean, you know, there, there are so many of these overlapping identities, which particularly in that region, in the Caucasus region, come into play. Meanwhile, the latest season of Succession, which is definitely not based on the Murdochs, seems to be unfolding in real time. Murdoch's deposition in the Dominion Voting Systems lawsuit against Fox News dropped with a thud. Not only did he admit that he knew Fox News spread lies about the election being stolen, but he confessed that he had allowed them to keep on doing so. Tucker Carlson's texts are out, one of them saying how passionately he hates Trump. Trump is tweeting, sorry, truthing, as fast as his tiny hands will let him. Kendall Roy, sorry, Lachlan Murdoch said in a statement that Fox News has always reported news fulsomely, wholesomely and without fear or favour. Our lead producer, Jacob Jarvis, spoke to Julie Norman, co-director of the UCL's Centre of U.S. Politics for the Bunker USA. Here's a quick recap. What's going on with Fox News? What is happening there? (laughs) Tucker Carlson is saying some stuff about new January 6th footage, but then at the same time we're seeing there are these revelations coming out that Rupert Murdoch maybe knew a little bit more about the the mistruths, let's say, that uh, Donald Trump was spouting. So, yes, there's a lot going on with Fox News these days. Two main stories. One um, is that Tucker Carlson, who's a very well-known Fox News commentator, is uh, recently had access to, I think, about 40,000 hours of footage from the January 6th uh, uh, riot and went through that selected some clips and basically uh, prepared a a package and a show that suggested that January 6th was much more peaceful and that um, the the allegations of of widespread violence and and wrongdoing was was overinflated and whatnot. So that aired this last week. It's gotten pushback from Capitol Police, from um, notably the White House, and even from bipartisan members of Congress. So uh, Senate Minority Leader uh, Mitch McConnell coming out very strongly against this portrayal of January 6th, which Again, the congresspersons lived through and all of us watched unfold on TV. So um, by really trying to paint that narrative. Yeah, well, that's the thing is sort of any new footage can't eradicate the old footage, which we all saw happen at the time, can it? Exactly. And I think um, I I can't speak for for Tucker Carlson, obviously, but my sense of this was a sense of trying to push back against, say, the January 6th hearings, which really, um, you know, showed uh, it in very long terms how things played out that day. And this is trying to provide, I think, um, a counter narrative that is appealing to Trump's base um, that offers kind of a different story just with selective uh, choosing of these um, of these clips. 
So that's one thing. The other thing that is going on right now is there is a um, a court case going on um, with Fox News, uh, and I won't go into all the details of that. But but some of the elements that are coming out in these court cases are text messages and communications of Fox News employees, commentators, anchors um, in that post election period, uh, saying essentially that they did not believe some of Trump's allegations, but were continuing to air them and give voice to them because they were good for ratings. And this is emerging from the the Dominion voting defamation suit, isn't it? Exactly. So Dominion Voting was one of the um, providers of voting machines during the 2020 elections. Um, they were uh, alleged by Trump and then by by Fox to have been, um, you know, faulty machines to have enabled a lot of the voter fraud. So they are essentially suing Fox News for amplifying that narrative. So that's where a lot of these text messages and uh, and other kinds of communications are now coming to light. Mm, and th- that seems to go right to the to the top from what I can glean. So Rupert Murdoch has been folded into this as he actually knew a little bit or had suspicions that maybe what Trump was saying wasn't quite 100%. Certainly. So we've heard that from Murdoch. We've heard it from some of um, Trump's most uh, loud uh, allies, I would say, at Fox, including Tucker Carlson, including Sean Hannity, with those who were doubting these um, things that Trump was saying, even acknowledging that it could be quite dangerous, but still feeling like this is what their viewership wanted to hear. This is what Trump's base wanted to hear. So they kind of made a business decision to lean into that, even though they were aware that it was not um, correct. Yasmin, does anything about the American media landscape shock you anymore? Or is this all par for the course? Uh, No, nothing shocks me. (laughs) I decided to go with brevity. Um, No, I I think this is par for the course. I mean, we spent a a good portion of this conversation talking about, you know, the BBC, impartiality, etc. No one has those conversations when it comes to the American news media landscape. Um, And does it shock me that Fox News has has said things that it just thinks it wants its viewers to hear? Um, No. Tucker Carlson continued to push the idea that the January 6th rioters were, and I quote, orderly and meek sightseers. And just at the moment, Trump was praising him online for his fearless reporting. A private message leaked from the trial about how he hates Trump passionately. Is the right wing beginning to fracture? Or is this simply part of Fox switching support from Trump to DeSantis? I'm actually not sure if it's indicative of either of those things. Um, Rather, I think it's more to it, what I, I guess, take away from it is the fact that Carlson is uniquely insinc- insincere. Um, I think in most <laughs> things he says. Um, I was trying to remember. That's fair enough. <laughs> I think my former Atlanta colleague, McKay Coppins, did a really great profile of him. I want to say in 2018 that really captured this. Um, I think he wrote to, to the extent that Carlson's on air commentary d- these days is guided by any kind of animating idea. It is perhaps best summarized as a staunch aversion to whatever his right minded neighbors believe and his neighbors being kind of, you know, the the elite, the establishment living in his neighborhood of Washington, D.C. Um, I think it's worth remembering that Carlson is not only among the elite, but I think he he is kind of very populist in the way that he just tries to you know, stoke this us versus them. Does it shock me that he would on air say like positive things about Trump and then behind closed doors rail against him? Absolutely not. But Murdoch is a bit more strategic than that. Do you think he is beginning to shift 
towards DeSantis? Um, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, not being in D.C., it's kind of hard to gauge mm, where yeah. the Republican Party is. I think if you talk to the party faithful, I think there is still quite a lot of enthusiasm for Trump. And in fact, I think Ben Judah had a really good piece in the New Statesman a few weeks back in which he was talking to Democrats and Republicans in D.C. and no one was really talking about DeSantis in a serious way. That said, it's still pretty early days and we just don't really know what's going to happen. Um, do I think that Fox and Carlson may probably just go where the wind blows on this? Probably if they think that Trump is a lose, like a, a losing ship, then or a sinking ship, I should say, then I, I don't see why they wouldn't jump mm, for another mm. more popular candidate. Mary Andrew Neil, that other former impartial BBC sacred beast, said, "Go woke, go broke." But is this the natural end of a sort of the news rage machine, the GB news and the like? Everyone hates everything, everywhere, all at once. I see what you're doing. Yeah. Um, did you like I, it? I did. Thank um, you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. So I, I wonder. Like, I, I wonder if it may not. Like, if it's not necessarily a sort of right right wing thing specifically, but more that again, you know, I'm just going to bang the drum I was banging earlier of like the media landscape is changing massively, and I think especially if you look at Fox News or GB News or whatever, the channels that basically aim to make people as angry as possible. Um, are not making themselves irrelevant in the process because once you really riled people up, what they're going to do is probably end up falling down further the rabbit hole and actually end up spending their days on Twitter and Facebook mm. and watching mental YouTube videos, etc. Yeah. where I think actually quite radicalized, angry people are more likely to find their fix on social media than they are on a television channel. So, so I think it's probably more that. But, but again, it's something that is happening on the left to an extent as well. If again, as you said, if you encourage everyone to kind of become quite alienated from every sort of like slither in the, in the way that the left always does anyway, because that's what, you know. Um, that's so what you have to for. basically be willing to see it to the bitter end, because if you just get people this much angry, mm. you then lose them an, a, as an audience. You basically, they, yeah. they yeah, find someone even angrier than you. Well, yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> I think. That's really, I, I find that a really interesting thesis, actually. I hadn't thought of it. Uh, Arthur, the Murdoch media, it seems to me a little bit quiet here. They, did they see the straws in the wind earlier than others in the Lineker affair? They've not attacked Starmer with the ferocity they did Corbyn or Miliband, actually. Is the pitch being rolled for supporting the guy that is 18% ahead in the polls? Well, I suspect it's being rolled for his likely victory, and they don't want to look like they've, they've said this is the end of Britain as we know it. I don't think they're going to do what they did with Blair. Remember that Blair flew around the world to the special private island that the Murdochs own and sort of went in on bended knee and, and a deal was done. I, I don't sense Starmer's ready to do that. But then, of course, Murdoch isn't the power that he was, certainly not in this country, uh, um, you know, which, where, where we don't, you know, he hasn't managed to replicate the Fox News model. So I, I think in that sense, what they're doing is that they're letting Starmer be successful. They'll obviously snipe away at him a bit on the edges, but they're not going to set themselves in pure opposition to him. Yeah, and they certainly don't want to be seen to back a, an eventual loser because that yeah. that makes them look less powerful and Indeed. more irrelevant. Um, Yasmin, if this leads to Trump being dropped in favour of DeSantis, I know that's a big hypothetical, but does that change the calculation for whom the Democrats put forward it could. I mean, I think if Trump is nominated, then Biden will be 
seen as a stronger candidate because we already know that he is capable of, the Democrats already know that he's capable of beating him. If it's DeSantis, I mean, the polling, they've done kind of perspective polling. And I think what that has shown is that DeSantis looks more electable in part because U.S. voters are less likely to have an opinion about him. So it's hard to really have a strong aversion against someone you don't know. But I think the biggest challenge is that, you know, we don't know who the other Democratic options are. And so if we don't, then I I think, you know, it seems like we're already slipping into an expectation that Biden will be the nominee, that it really is for him to pull out of it rather than for him to, to run up against a challenger. So but we'll see. It's nearly the end of the show, so it's time for Escape Routes. What are the things that have been distracting our panel this week? Arthur, let's start with you. Well, uh, having recently moved house, I've got that thing of unpacking books that you've you've ignored for a few years. And there's been lots of little joys, but a book that I often go back to because it is, in my opinion, the best book ever written is Foucault's Pendulum by Umberto Eco. And every time I read it, I just find it so amusing and clever and funny and and you see new things in it. So I, it's, it's, it's probably on its fourth outing for me. And, Strong and it, choice. I haven't read it in, in ah, a good decade. So, so much joy awaits you. Very good. Marie, how about you? Um, so I apologise in advance to anyone who follows me on social media because I've already heard uh, about it uh, numerous times. But on Saturday, I was in Margate uh, for a friend's <laughs> Hindu, And this was not part of the plan at all. It's just we went to have lunch and one of our friends went, guys, I just went for like a little walk around and I found a place called the Crab Museum. Um, and literally as a joke over lunch, we were like, you know what? Fuck it. Fine. We'll go to the Crab Museum. And like. Honest to God, I have never loved this hard. I think in my entire life that it is the best museum in the entire world. There was a point again, and the problem is I don't really want to spoil anything. There is one display which made me laugh so hard I had to sit on the ground because I couldn't (laughs) breathe anymore. Um, And their merch as well is absolutely incredible, Uh, which again, I think just go go online and have a look. Um, I'm sort of looking at your face and it makes me happy just just receiving <laughs> vicariously your joy about the Crab Museum in Margate. It was so good, but yeah. You should inquire about being a brand ambassador, I feel like. So, so A, I've already thought about this. B, uh, I would like my title to be the Crambassador. Um, and C, they now follow me on Instagram, which is one of the oh best things God, that have ever brilliant. happened to me. Um, so yeah. Yasmin, how about you? I don't know how to follow that. I'll be honest. Um, <laughs> you can't. Uh, I, I can't. And, and yeah, and I can't actually say that I've been, I, I was, the first thing that came to mind is something that's not really a distraction from politics. So I'm going to go with what I'm looking forward to as a future distraction, which is that Ted Lasso is coming back um, for okay. their, I can't remember if it's their fourth or third season. I hear such good things about this and everyone says it's my sort of Oh, you'd thing. love it. That like so 100% good. hand to the fire, you'd love it. Yeah. It's so okay. good. But, right. what, but what I would tell people for who haven't seen Ted Lasso is not to watch the trailer for this season and let that make you think that it's incredibly boring. Because if you, I, I decided to watch it and pretend I didn't know what the show was about. And it occurred right, to me right. that it makes it look so dull. It's so I have actually, to go to season one, episode one. Yeah. Basically. Um, yeah. Very good. But yeah, I'm very excited for that. It should be good. Um, and and my uh, uh, escape route has been nothing. Genuinely, I, it has been such a <laughs> delightful. No 
It's been <laughs> such a delightful week during which politics and entertainment sort of merged. Politics, entertainment and football merged into one glorious ball of flame. And I've absolutely loved it. It's the first time in ages where I felt I didn't need to switch off. I felt like actually we were winning a little <laughs> bit. So... There you go. And that's the end of Tuesday's edition of Oh God, What Now? We'll be back on Friday, or if you'd like the podcast a little earlier and without ads, you can back us on Patreon. Just search Oh God, What Now? Patreon. For now, here's a theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, along with a thank you to our latest Patreon backers. Hello, and a big shout from me to Alan Millard, Sarah, and Russian Jackson. Greetings and many thanks from me to Bill Neild, Alex M and Thomas Henshaw. Hello from me and thanks for your support to Pat Scott, Shauna McLean and Kate Walker. And finally, thanks for backing us and all the best from me to Emily, Jennifer Halls and Catherine Crute. Thank you for listening and we'll see you later this week. All that remains for me to say is... To the Lenica, one nil, to the Lenica, one nil, to the Lenica, one nil, to the Lenica, one nil. <laughs>